0: within the terms of future growth and the dynamics that are changing, I think it's absolutely essential to be spending a good amount of time reflecting on that.
1: You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a
2: Greetings and hello, I am James Robert Lay, and welcome to the 109th episode of the Banking on Digital Growth Podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, and I'm excited to welcome Alex Sion to the show. Alex is the global consumer banking lead for the D10X program, which incubates new products and businesses designed to generate new organic growth for City. Before joining City Ventures, Alex was the general manager of mobile for JP Morgan Chase. In addition to co founding Movin, the World's first neo bank in 2012. Alex brings a tremendous amount of experience and insight around innovation and banking, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today to educate, to empower, to elevate you, the dear listener, as you continue to move forward and make progress along your own digital growth journey. Welcome to the show, Alex.
0: James, thank you for having me.
2: Before we get into it, What are you excited about right now, personally or professionally in this, this new world that we're navigating through together?
0: I am excited in, you know, I think the FinTech world coming out of COVID and the pandemic period has really accelerated beyond anybody's estimations. So if you kind of remember when, when the pandemic first started, There were a lot of boardrooms in the banking universe that had assembled with the assumption that the fintech kind of phenomenon was going to go by the wayside. Yep, And that it was a great opportunity, frankly, for large incumbents to to harvest, you know, kind of the the roadkill uh, from the fintech highway. So there was a lot of boardrooms that were kind of preparing capital and plans to basically do just that. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, that, that didn't happen. Like not by a long shot, right? And many of the underlying trends that were kind of behind the phenomenon that we know as SynTech just accelerated beyond anybody's estimation. So I'm really excited that you know the the kind of the vision of the world that I I believed in, right, that I have believed in for decade plus, is really coming to fruition now, which I think creates just enormous opportunities you know, pretty much everywhere throughout the world of finance. So I think it's a really exciting time to be engaged in the space.
2: Well, you speak about, you know, this belief that you've held for a decade plus and all of the opportunities. Before we dive into some of those innovation opportunities available financial for financial brands to either create or to capture, I wanna I wanna go back in time with you as 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 you've had a very interesting journey along the way. Our paths have crossed indirectly when you were co founding Movin with Brett King uh, 10 years ago in, in two thousand twelve. And and it was that movement started by Movin as well as simple ten years ago that really helped spur on this beginning of innovation in the banking space, in the fintech space that's continued to increase in speed over the last decade, even really more than the last 15, 18 months, thanks to COVID. So when you think about just this past decade where you've been this journey, what has been the biggest progress that you've seen in regards to innovation when you reflect back at the macro level?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great question James so and I've been doing a lot of reflection yes. these days just to get my head around you know where, where the world is heading next but but I, I think it all started when, when Brett and I kind of began the moving journey, the catalyst really was the the iPhone right you know the, the, the introduction of the iPhone um, as well as kind of what was going on in sh- social and what was emerging in payments and digital payments at the time. And we saw the combo of the three really starting to coalesce in kind of that 2007-2008 kind of time frame. Like the kernels were were kind of laid back then, and at that point, what we saw was kind of an inevitable journey. Like where, you know, the things that were happening with the mobile devices and the advancements there would inevitably, plus kind of social and what that did to behaviors like relative to digital and then what was happening kind of in the payments world, which actually was going back decades and decades, kind of the advancement of digital payments. We saw kind of a a world emerging where all of these things would inevitably combine. And what that would do, it would is that it would fundamentally re-architect the nature of, of commerce, right. In general. And we tied sort of commerce back to essentially Banking and money, and it struck both of us at the time that this kind of inevitable path that we kind of saw happening, even in 2008, would essentially break the banking model. Right? Yes, and, you know, Brett famously, coined the term of breaking banks in his his kind of own show. But that really was the, the the kind of the, the the thesis was that where the world would be heading would be social behaviors, these the technology that was kind of under enabling things. Would render the banking model as we knew it in almost every way you can think of as insufficient to kind of support the the needs of commerce, which which is what banking was founded to do in some ways. So we we saw, you know, what I guess I'd say is that summarizing is that I think that it's really the event was 2008, right? Like you know, and it was really just uh, this, you know, to me to me almost like a predictable path. That yes. has had inflection points along the way, but it, it hasn't really been any surprising things. I, I would say maybe the advent of digital currencies, which mm. we kind of thought about a little bit, like was kind of a, a key kind of unexpected, you know, kind of black swan and everything that that could really kind of change everything eventually. But but I don't know if we've really been surprised by anything other than maybe the speed and, and the capital right now opinion upon it. I've gone through, over the past decade or so, various iterations on whether or not I think fintechs win, will win or incumbents will win or, or end up being partnership models. I think that's another area where I've, I'm still thinking a lot about whether the jury's still out on that. And it's flipped my opinion a couple of times over the past couple of years. But but I, I actually think that nothing has really been that surprising since since really nearly 2008 you just got to kind of look look out and, and see where the balls inevitably get along to.
2: Right. And, and you said a couple of key points that I want to dive deeper on just from a personal perspective, because you mentioned that you've been doing a lot of reflection. You've been doing yeah. a lot of thinking. How important is it at a we'll just call it a, a leadership level at a financial brand to create that space and time to break free from the doing of whatever it is? Because I think if you get stuck in doing when it comes to innovation, that's a very dangerous place to be because otherwise you've got a a wave of transformation and change happening at an environmental level happening at a cultural level a society level technology level all coming up behind you how important is it to create that space and time to just stop to pause to review to reflect to learn to think so that you can do even better going forward and how do you apply that just within your own personal methodologies here
0: yeah no i i think it's fundamentally critical like and and i think you it really starts with reflecting and really coming to terms with the idea of future growth and what it will take to continue to sustainably grow i actually don't even like the word innovation much these days i would rather kind of use the word of emerging growth or future growth as as a better way to think about it so i think every executive Cash to spend i mean their charter is to continuously drive drive growth like for their organization and in pursuit of that you've got to be coming to the recognition these days that that the old tricks of how you grew are diminishing in returns and that there are fintechs out there who are essentially running new new tricks and and at this point you've got to come down to that you know capitulation that hey these some of these new tricks are working, right? They're fundamentally right. working. right? And if you just reflect, spend time reflecting on that, not within the context of, of new ideas or, you know, what I call the shiny trinkets mode of innovation, the you know idea generation, but think of it very practically yes. um, within the terms of future growth and the dynamics that are changing. I think it's absolutely essential to be spending a good amount of time reflecting on that. And then to the second part of your question, organizationally, I think that what that does is if you think about the world in that way, that kind of like old growth playbooks and new growth playbooks, you'll un- inevitably come to the recognition that that those new growth playbooks are counterintuitive. Like the math doesn't work based right. upon how you think about the world today. Like the yes. business cases won't add up. And so therefore you by your organizational design in your dna are almost inevitably going to reject all new growth strategies you know yep. and you, and you've almost got to fundamentally come to terms with that and just say look that can't be the answer <laughs> right like it can't be the answer that we keep exploring these ideas and at the end of the day they just never add up because they're adding up
2: yes for <laughs> other
0: people so you know figure that out <laughs> and then that usually requires a different organization structure permission process whatever it is but but you can't do it from your existing playing field
2: and that's one of the things that i've been in, in in the advisory and the coaching work that i do i've been just encouraging so many like covid is just a preview it's just a preview it's the warm up of what is to come and to really use this experience as a way to just get comfortable feeling uncomfortable because what's going to happen over the next 5 to 10 years because if we go back i think 2008 it's a great time period because like you said the launch of the iphone the rise of social media you know youtube coming online i, I think back to whenever i got into this space it was 2001 2002 and built almost essentially an early social network called Bear Swap, which was at Baylor University. And it was a way to (laughs) bypass the bookstore that was ripping students off at the time. And so we connected students with students to do some type of commerce exchange. And we were gonna take that and license it and bring it to other universities. And then a a guy by the name of Mark Zuckerberg had a much bigger vision of connecting people online. And we were just looking (laughs) at a small microcosm. (laughs) of it, but, but it was a great learning experience. And so when we leap ahead to the present moment and the work that you're doing as head of venture incubation through the work of D10X, what's the purpose of D10X and, and what will be some of the trends and patterns that you're seeing through that work that you're doing right now as a team, when it comes to, I, I don't like that. It's not just innovation. It's really about growth at the end of the day.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I think that is the evolution of that I've seen in my time at City with D10X is when I first kind of arrived at City, there was there was an emphasis on culture change and ideation, right? Like, you know, as kind of the, the crux of innovation. And what I've seen is that morph very much into what I would call the emerging growth strategy, right? Looking very being very aligned with the business in their growth objectives and focused on exactly the same metrics and targets that they're focused on but looking at it from what we call you know this challenger lens you know the business kind of partnering very closely with the business to essentially run parallel almost a b testing of yes. different ways to go about growth right so you know everybody wants to grow and as a target of growing by x percent it's just like how would you do it and then how would how would we do it if you ten x and and often that creative tension with you know thinking about growth and segments and, and marketing and value propositions very differently you know more like a, an unencumbered startup I think challenges and raises the tide for everybody. So what we're what doing these days is spending a lot of time deeply embedded and partnered with the business in their growth strategy pursuits, and then really kind of using essentially a different frame of reference, the challenger rate frames of reference and some of the methodology that you would use in the startup world to essentially de-risk yeah. high potential growth concepts in a different way. We're just applying those principles to the growth objectives that City is already pursuing. And I think it's, it's been a great kind of uh, great partnership and, and really done wonders for the
2: firm. You mentioned the startup world, which in my mind just immediately jumps to more of an agile-like methodology, learning from experiences, applying those new new insights going forward, and essentially taking what we call the four digital growth operating environments of you can be learning, you can be thinking, you can be doing, you can be reviewing, and the faster that you can cycle through each one of those environments, the faster that growth will happen. And when you think about the idea of emerging growth strategy, I'm curious to, to gain your perspective and insight for the dear listener what holds people back from really leaning into emerging growth what are those roadblocks to be aware of in the mind more so than anything i think
0: yeah i think a lot of it i've spent a lot of time reflecting on the fundamental business construct of firms that are have identified a clear profitability model Mm. and it's been working for the past century.
2: Yeah, right.
0: right? And what that essentially does is it kind of hardwires this growth strategy path to the point at which it can be, and rightly so, incredibly efficient and mechanical, right? And prescribed. And that's not a bad thing. Like, it's not a bad thing. But at the same point in time, I feel like what's happened in digital is that it is upended some of the laws, you know, kind of the laws of physics. Like my, my boss, Vanessa Calella, the, the head of innovation for city, often talks about the difference between theoretical p- physics and applied physics. Right? Right. like, uh, right. and, and wants us to be much more in the applied physics land. And so we got this thesis, the fintechs got these thesis, that the, that essentially the, the rules of physics for the banking business model have changed. And therefore, you know, you can talk about it all day long, right, in that theoretical zone, but how do you actually get out there, right, yep. and then basically challenge those fundamental notions of what is the right segment to go after, what is the the right business model, how do you monetize, right, mm. like, the customer relationship in very different ways, again, in ways that will seem like, to the banking business model, it's lost lead, very risky, operationally prohibitive, right? But, you, but you've got to get out there. And yes. so I think that the only way to do that is to, is to be out there, right? Um, because the cost of entry gets incredibly more expensive, right, as these fintechs get more legs under them. It costs a lot of money to buy into a new paradigm once it's already set.
1: Loans and deposits. Now back to the show.
2: And when you're talking about profitability models, in almost disrupting yourself. I can't help but think of the story of Netflix and how Netflix, they had, you know, going against Blockbuster. They tried for an acquisition with Blockbuster that was denied. So then they went direct to market and built that up. And then they took their DVD model and then transformed that into streaming and then streaming. And now they're really a production house. And so it's this continuous evolution. And and when I think about new revenue models, too, I think about the work that Joe Polizzi has done, who's been a, a guest on the show. He was the founder of the Content Marketing Institute. And he has this whole philosophy of content, Inc., and how content can fuel these different business models. So I think there's a lot of, of ways of just rethinking how we generate revenue by creating value for account holders. And that opens up whole new possibilities, but it does come down to that one word of practicality, applying this so that it actually creates, it's not just so theoretical. And you noted previously, almost like an A-B testing methodology. And, And you've written about this when you think about running these kind of two parallel business models, these patterns, when we're thinking about this, one of the things that you noted in this article was something that I'm, and I'm grateful to see this, I'm, I'm hearing more, and I would say it's probably on the fintech side of things, but what Clayton Christensen writes about, which is the, this theory of jobs to be done, because it's such a new idea in this space, could you just unpack briefly at a high level of what are jobs to be done and what value Value can they create when thinking about these new profitability and revenue models for emerging growth?
0: Yeah. Well, the, the way I think about jobs as a product person, product entrepreneur, is is I would I'd say very different than the way I try to articulate jobs to kind of C level stakeholders who are allocating capital. Right. right. So let me try to take, let me try to explain the first part like that, that uh, product operator jobs is pretty straightforward in that it is really what is the, the fundamental value proposition that you are delivering to the customer? Like, what are you helping them to accomplish? Not the service you offer, but essentially the, the solution, the, the problem that they are trying to solve yep. and really kind of deeply to understand that, so for product entrepreneurs, that sounds like very, very simple, straightforward language. But where it gets complex for large incumbent organizations is that that can be extolled at the, you know, kind of at the product level, the UX level, all day long people will agree. But it's that it's that construct above it that we mm. were just talking about, right? right? The capital allocation, how the C level people think and how they process it. What I would say is when I'm talking to them, what I try to talk about is the fact that behavior change and technology are opening up these essentially different playbooks, right? That, that will feel illogical. And and just kind of grant yourself that they are logical. Like you'll never make the business case work in your head, but if you can recognize and at least reconcile the volatility, right? And just admit to yourself that it's a volatile time. Then what i like to say to C-level executives is, How would you, if you're allocating assets, like your job is to allocate growth capital, right, across the business in the appropriate ways, how much capital have you allocated towards this new playbook volatility? Fundamentally, how much have you? Like, what's the dollar amount? Right. And I guarantee you, if they went through the math, what they would find is they're probably, it's de minimis, right? It's not a relevant level of allocation, Given or appropriate level of allocation, given the volatility, like the, given the risk that this volatility represents. So it, it really is, it kind of elevates the conversation to say, look, you don't have to buy what I'm saying in terms of jobs or kind of admit to yourself that you're not customer centric or whatever, right? Right. Which creates all these problems. But you can at least, you know, kind of admit that as a capital allocator, right, and a growth capital allocator that you are under-hedged.
2: Yes. <laughs>
0: right, like you, you are under-hedged, and if you can do that, then you can at least set aside this pr- appropriate risk-rising investment to explore what then will become jobs, right? Like at the end of the day, you know, so I think it's, it's two different ways to explain it. On a product level, it's pretty straightforward, but the more complex one, that I think is really the, the the hardest thing for the industry to get is is that
2: other side. Yeah, and and you've touched on this idea, you mentioned the word entrepreneurship earlier. My mind then goes to the other side of the spectrum of what are the opportunities, if any, from an entrepreneurship when it comes to looking at emerging growth? Because when you think about entrepreneurship, it, it's looking for opportunities, putting people at the center of all of your thinking, all of your do, doing human centered design, human centered growth, for example. But what are the opportunities for let's just call it entrepreneurship, to bring that capability into a financial brand to spur further emerging growth opportunities here?
0: I think it's essential to organic growth, right? Like, so if you're, frankly, you're at a a place now in banking where the, you know, JP Morgan Chase today just acquired another FinTech in the ESG space, right? Like there's, there are going to be more acquisitions happening in in, in organically to pivot business models. The problem with inorganic growth is that it's expensive, right? Especially, when you have no kind of inhibitors to scale and you have got such you know kind of intensity on the private and venture market side bidding up prices it's expensive it's going to be an expensive way for an incumbent to turn around so to your point entrepreneurship becomes then essential right like you've got to be you know organic growth is the best way to do it it's the cheapest way to do it and then what do you need for that like you need to kind of Unplug people from the matrix. You need to kind of have that, you know, ability to kind of have people inside who frankly are best positioned to understand both the business model and the growth objectives and the strategy of the firm and the customer history, all those things. If you can you can do the work to provide them with the lane to play a different way and to think a different way, I actually think that's the most efficient way to drive transformation, but it's hard, Right, it's hard. I'm not trivializing that path, but I do think if you just kind of stay back and just look at it from a pure C-level economics perspective, you'd rather do that than to, uh, you know, to inter, to inorganically do
2: it. Correct, right. and as as you're talking about this idea of organic growth, I wanna play for a moment, and I've had this conversation twice this week alone with FinTechs, fin, so a couple of them are actually just start trying to get started up. And I'm a fintech. Let's just assume I'm a fintech and I have two choices. I can go direct to market B2C, or I could go b 2 b to c and then look to bring my capability into an incumbent financial brand and probably get faster scale because the incumbent has the eyeballs, they have the audience, but then the fintech uh, has the capabilities and the technologies. What are the opportunities there? Because you mentioned this to begin our conversation of, is it going to, be the fintech that wins is it going to be the incumbents or is it going to be a blended world of two where's your thinking here right now at this point in time with with, with the right to to change your mind
0: yeah no, james it's a great question and i've had over the over the decade no less than three conversions on this thesis yes <laughs> like, like uh, along the way and I, I, it, to be honest, like, so what I not anticipate, you know, or Brett and I anticipate kind of early on in the movement days, some of it was the extent of how quickly and how massively the private markets would embrace fintech. I mean, we kind of all knew that it was such a massive space and it was just a matter of time, like when we were trying to raise money for movement in the early days, People didn't even know what we were talking about. Like there wasn't <laughs> there wasn't the word FinTech to describe it, right? Or m- much less the benchmarking tables on FinTech fundraisers. But I had, you know, it, it continues to blow my mind, the amount of private capital being driven into this space. Right. So that's kind of one factor that I look at and I clock relative to who can win. But I think it's difficult to argue now to say that a fintech that has achieved some kind of differentiation in the market does not have the access to capital to go against the biggest companies in the world. Correct. Okay. I think that that's definitely you know there now, right? It maybe wasn't at a point in time when I had flipped on the other side. The other thing is is really the consumer behaviors, right? So I clocked that a lot and obviously money is a very sensitive topic and and trust is a huge part of it and, absolutely you know and there's so much so much ingrained in human behaviors so it's that bet on human behaviors and how far will they really index and again like there have been points in time where I was just like it, it's maybe not going to go as far as as Bitcoin wants it to go right <laughs> you know right. Uh, but I've been proven wrong on that right and I feel like now that's another thing a dynamic, right, where the consumer behaviors are continuing to go further than I had anticipated yes. in the world of money, right, than I ever thought it could. The last bit, which is really kind of that, I think the biggest X factor of all is, is governments, like, and, you know, the non-financial players who have the ability from governments to the retailers to the commerce players, if they don't want to play, right. right, they can shut this all down. They can they can figure out a way to shut it all down. And again, that's an area where I was more cynical in the past. And I really didn't think, you know, I thought there were like, you know, some of the large retailers would end up reinforcing some of the old relationships with banks. Maybe that would shut the system down. Some of the governments would step in and shut things down. But that's not happening either. Right. Right. Um, and And again, I continue to be. You know, amazed by the deals, right? Like that—that that some of these early-stage fintechs, private companies, are able to strike with yes. massive commerce players, right? And um, that just—they rival, you know—they exceed those of what large, for example, super regionals in the U.S. could achieve, for example. Like that's just stuff that I would have never thought would have happened, and it's happening. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying. I do feel like it's it's we're now at another place where it's anybody's guess. Correct. Um, and, it, and it might even be leaning towards a greater sense of urgency yes. for incumbents to really, really, really take this seriously now.
2: Well, you know, you've, you've touched on this a couple of times in our conversation, this idea of digital currency, Bitcoin, crypto. The way that I look at this, like in in 2021, is almost where the internet was in 1996, 1997. There's a couple of like Good Morning America style shows where they were making fun of email and what is email and how does it all work uh, that you can find on YouTube. And I'm almost like, that's where we're at right now with crypto and digital currency. And I understand like that's creating a lot of angst and anxiety at the leadership level, because that really is where things are going to get transformed. I mean, NCR just did that deal with and I forgot who the, the brand was, but it's a it's a gas station somewhere like on the East Coast uh, so that you can pay in Bitcoin. And and when you think about all of this change happening and the speed of change, change is hard, change is scary, change is painful. When it comes to a just being a financial brand leader, what are your recommendations to others, to the Dear listeners, so that they can just deal and overcome some of this change and this risk aversion, so that it does not become an expense or a cost going forward into the future.
0: Yeah, I I really think the conversations that need to be happening need to kind of go in some ways need to take a step back and away hmm. from what I'll call product level conversations. Yeah, like so. So, so top stop talking about feature function. Stop talking about customer centricity. Stop talking about widgets. Yes. And then now elevate the conversation and talk about strategic risk and capital allocation. Right. Right. And how you are investing, you know, the the capital of the firm. Yes. Talk about that. And if you kind of like, if you just raise it up to that level and it becomes a rational discussion on the dynamics of volatility, like I was mentioning before. And at the end of the day, it's very difficult to conclude that there is no risk out there.
2: Right. You'd be crazy.
0: (laughs) And then then you can price that risk, right? Like that's what banks do, right? That's what financial services firms do. And if we price that risk appropriately, then it becomes something we know how to do, right? It's mechanical. Yes. And so if we can do that, and then you get to the conversation on features, functions, and blah blah blah. Or frankly, don't don't you know just make allocate the capital and just and just set the strategy going. But I do feel like um, maybe we've been focused too long on the wrong thing, which is kind of the the widgets, the features, the customer, and we've convinced ourselves that this is not a big deal that we can copy you know kind of what's going out there and react fast enough. And we're missing really the whole point, which is this, it's the business model. It's this, it's this kind of like the the page that they're operating from is just different. Yes. They're making decisions day in and day out very differently than we make them within large banks. And we have to come to terms with that.
2: Yes, and and that's where you know I think about uh, what what I call and I wrote about this in the book Banking on Digital Growth. But you have w- what I have, have coined the Purpose Statement Pyramid. At the foundation of that is the what. This is what we do. And you mentioned there's a lot at the product level. That, that's a lot of R and D, and and it's not research and development. It's it's ripping off and duplicating what others are doing. Then you have the level next level up. It's the how. It's it's the experience that you bring to bear through the what. Then it's the who. Getting really clear of of who are you creating this value for and then at the 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 pinnacle it's and i see a lot of fintech probably thinking about this more than anything it's the why it's why are we doing this and tapping into that and then letting inform the why uh letting the why inform the who then the how and then ultimately the what and then it trickles down all the way from that that higher order thinking or that higher level of, of of purpose this has been a fantastic conversation, Alex, and and, and I, I'm grateful for all of the knowledge, the insights that you've shared with the dear listener here today. As we wrap things up, you talk about practicality, and, and I always like to end on a very practical note. What is one practical recommendation when it comes to, and we're not going to use the word innovation Back to your point, we're, g- we're going to use the word growth or emerging growth. How can they capture some emerging growth starting small? Because all change, all transformation begins with a small, simple step, a small action, a small commitment. What would be that small action, that small commitment that you would recommend that they could take going forward on this, their own journeys of growth here today?
0: Yeah, I I would actually the, the practical step I recommend is, is have your finance team. Do the analysis on that allocation of growth investment capital. Yep. And identify the number that you you truly believe is being spent on emerging growth, like as a hedge. Yep. Right to 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 that risk. You know, identify that number. Walk around it. When you identify the number, make sure the board knows that number. Right. Like, like raise it to that level. That that should be a known number you know, at, at all kind of the sea levels of any bank or institution out there. To me, that's a very practical first step is, is is do the financial work to identify how you're allocated relative to your growth investment.
2: Absolutely. Well, Alex, thank you so much for all of the knowledge today. If anyone wants to just connect with you to say hello, what's the best way for them to reach out and do that? Sure.
0: Absolutely. You can reach me at city, alex.sion at city.com.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Reach out to Alex, say hello. Thank him for all of the knowledge that you've shared today. And thank you, Alex, once again, for joining me on another episode of banking on digital growth. This has been great, man. Awesome. Thanks, James. Appreciate it. As always. And until next time, be well, do good and make your bed.